welcome to Unjustly Maligned, the show for people who go against the grain. We seek to rehabilitate overlooked, ignored, derided, and just plain hated contributions to pop culture. Movies, novels, music, comic books, video games, whatever. If everyone hates it, we'll find someone who loves it and let them explain why you should too. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and my guest today is one of the founders and hosts of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 podcast, who also occasionally butts in with her opinions on Two Minute Time Lord, and pops up on a variety of other podcasts, from time to time, most of them concerning nerd pop culture. And when she's not busy doing that, she's an educator who, in her own words, tries to stuff knowledge into teenagers' heads. How lovely. So, welcome to the show, Shannon Suddeth. Hello. Glad to be here. And glad to have you on. And of course, uh, teenagers at school is kind of relevant to what we are talking about today. So let's get straight to it. Tell us what you have chosen and then give us some context around its release, its reception upon release, why it is generally maligned and why you think that that is wrong. Okay. So I am here to defend the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Um, I am apparently one of the 2% of the population who prefer the movie to the television show. I <laughs> uh, never really started the television show because I loved the movie so much. Um, and I think, and I'll get into a lot of reasons uh, later on why um, why I think it's unjustly maligned, but I think main, the main reason it's unjustly maligned is because Joss Whedon has a lot of fans. And Joss Whedon has made it clear he was not happy with the film. Uh, while that's certainly his right as the as the writer to feel that way, that perhaps um, it is not exactly what he wanted. Uh, I don't think that um, I don't think that means that uh, the movie itself is um, is as horrible as its reputation would suggest. Um, it, it has a medium showing. It hovers around the fifty percent mark if you look at all the different um, review sites and so forth. So it, it's not considered absolutely horrible by the general population or the critics who whose job it is to give opinions. Um, but you know, neither is it considered high art. And you know, I don't think it's high art either. I just think it's terrific fun. I think the thing is that, yes, as you say, it's not that it's generally hated so much as almost everyone says, well, it's not as good as the TV series. Exactly. Um, And I'm not sure that it's a question of it being as good as the TV series as much as it is just we've got two different mediums here. Um, We've got um, 90 minutes uh, movie um, created in a time where uh, there had been a whole slew of movies in the 80s about teenagers, teenage comedies, um, the, the Valley Girl stereotype we had in Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Valley Girl. Uh, we had all of that going on. Plus, we had a, an increase in the um, sort of the horror comedy concept, uh, which is not a new thing. I mean, all the way back to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, we've had silly vampires or funny vampires. Um, Roman Polanski, you know, the, like the great the great artist um, did the fearless vampire killers. Uh, we've had Love at First Bite. We've had uh, the original Fright Night. Uh, we had Once Bitten, uh, where Jim Carrey got a start, of all places, as far as the movies are concerned. Um, so, uh, the Lost Boys played a lot with comedy as well as horror tropes. So it's not that there was anything wrong with the concept of this movie. Uh, it just, you know, like I said, simply, you know, 
Whedon and uh, director uh, Fran Kuzi, I believe. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Kuzui, yeah. I Thank don't know. you. <laughs> um, had different ideas. He was going more for the horror aspect, I'm going to assume, with some comedy. She saw a comedy with some horror aspects. And it divided from there. And when Whedon um, had a few more movies under his belt, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was the first movie that he had gotten to the production level. And uh, I think given the chance when he went back to do his own thing, uh, and a lot of people sat up and took notice uh, at what he did. And to be to be fair, the TV show does a lot of interesting things. Uh, it sets up what we have had since... Um, since the turn of the century with these TV series that deal with the supernatural, that deal with magic, that deal with horror tropes, but are also delivering a quip every two minutes. Uh, you're charmed, you're supernatural, you're teen wolf. All of that stuff can be laid to uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. So it's, I think we're just simply just looking at sort of two different concepts uh, or two different formats trying to deal with the same concept. And I, I, I will argue with anybody who says that makes one worse than the other. Just as an aside, I'd never, as odd as it may sound, I'd never actually made the connection between Charmed and Buffy before and talk about an, another series that is kind of generally maligned mm-hmm. by a lot of people. But uh, yeah, that's a really good point. I, I used to quite enjoy Charmed. It was you know, silly fluff, but it was enjoyable I enough. I did too. I liked it quite a bit. Talking about writers... Uh, complaining about misinterpretations. I mean, I, this is something that I have direct experience of, not in screenplays, but in things like comics and right. uh, video games where, you know, it is a collaboration, much like movies. These media are collaborations between uh, various people. So I do have some sympathy mm-hmm. with Whedon for that. And, you know, let's not forget, Whedon is now one of the most celebrated directors. So let's not, you know, cry too heavily for him. <laughs> um, but... I, I do have some sympathy with him saying, well, that's actually not how I meant it to be. That's not the interpretation I was going for. But at the same time, it is a collaborative medium. And I, like you, I like this movie. I, I enjoyed it when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen it since it came out <laughs> don't, uh, until I watched it in preparation for the show. But I enjoyed it again. In fact, if anything... I think I probably enjoyed it more this time around than I did in 1992. Uh, I had a similar experience. Uh, uh, in 1992, I'd gone back to grad school and uh, had gotten involved in the science fiction club on campus. And at one point, somebody was like, hey, there's this movie coming out. Let's all go see it. So I was sitting in like a group of two rows of science fiction fans, um, all sitting back, kicking back to watch this movie. And by and large... Everybody had, you know, a similar opinion of that was fun. It wasn't necessarily serious. Um, it wasn't necessarily the best filmmaking. I could certainly understand criticism about uh, some of the costuming or some of the staging of scenes. Um, but we all left the theater going, that was kind of fun, and quoting bits. You know, this this was the Joss Whedon yeah. mystique in its infancy. Um, you know, Buffy, you know, declaring out loud, Don't you get it? I don't want to be the chosen one. I don't want to spend the rest of my life chasing after vampires. All I want to do is graduate from high school, go to Europe, marry Christian Slater, and die. Now, it may not sound too exciting to a sconehead like you, but I think it's swell. Several of us clapped at that, you know, that um, enjoying it so much. 
So, you know, like you, very fond memories of that first showing. Uh, I've seen it a few times here and there since then, and of course, watched it again uh, in preparation for the podcast. And, you know, I still think it holds up as long as you are looking at it as this is fun. This is, you know, Valley Girl meets Vampires. Uh, or clueless means, means vampires, depending on your generation. Um, so I think it still, I think it still works uh, as long as you have not decided that uh, Joss Whedon's word is God, and Joss has said this is not canon. Therefore, I'm going to ignore it. Well, and let's not also forget this was a, a cheap movie. It was. You know, it, it's, I'm looking at the the Wikipedia page right now. The budget was seven million dollars. Even in 1992, that was a cheap movie. Yeah, and and it, within that budget, they still managed to get some major names like Rucker Hauer and Donald mm. Sutherland. Well, and Luke Perry at the time, mm-hmm. don't forget, was you know uh, he was a, uh, a big name. Yeah. He was big enough that like you know everybody knew who Luke Perry was. He may not have been a major box office star, right? But he was certainly somebody that everybody knew his name. I can't imagine that he was cheap either. Right. And within that budget, yeah, they managed to, as you say, there are some of the co- the costuming. Oh, mm-hmm. God, so 90s. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, some of the costuming, and as you say, some of the staging and the lighting's a bit campy in places and stuff. But for such a small budget, and given that it was combining comedy with horror at the same time, um, there's not too much, you know, you look back and you think, yeah, okay, if they just had a bit more money, right? maybe maybe it could have looked a bit mm-hmm. better. But overall, I think they did a really good job with, with what they had. Yeah, I think the, the, the best part, of, one of the strengths of this movie, I think, is the casting overall. Uh, I, I, think, I think Kirsty Swanson is a delight. She totally nails, way before Alicia Silverstone does, she totally nails the, the Valley Girl attitude. Uh, and carries it through um, all the way through the movie, even as her character starts growing and um, accepting this destiny that is suddenly thrust upon her, she still holds on to that part of her. Uh, and I think she does it supremely well. Um, I think Luke Perry does a very nice job. I've, I've seen him in other things, uh, Jeremiah, and, and enjoyed his work. So I know there's more to him than Dylan of, of 90210. <laughs> um, and which is, of course, where everybody knew him from, yeah. <laughs> but also, some of the other... This was actually sort of a starting point for several actors. Um, Hilary Swank. Uh, I was just going to mention Hilary Swank, because she really nails the Valley Girl thing as well, Absolutely, I and, you know, she goes on to win a couple of Oscars in, in her career and become become a huge a huge name. She was the first clue to me that of how long it had been since I watched this yeah. movie, because when I saw her name come up in the credits, I was like, wait, what? Yep. Uh, <laughs> I had no memory that she had been in this movie. And she's a major character. It's not like she's some walk-on right. part who has two lines. Right, yeah, she, she's one of Buffy's crowd and the, the one with the most personality in that crowd. And the most lines, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, uh, you know, there's other ki- people like uh, David Arquette. Uh, there's actually, of all people, Ben Affleck and Seth Green are yes. in there in tiny parts, <laughs> although you don't get to see much of them. Um, but of all people, Pee Wee Herman. That was one of that's one of my strongest memories of going and seeing that the very first time because I wasn't paying attention as the credits were rolling so much. I was watching the cheerleading. And after the movie, and we're all, you know, going out and milling around and not quite ready to depart yet. And then somebody points out that that was Paul Rubens, and somebody else is like, No way. I'm like, wait a minute, Paul Rubens, what? Pee-wee Herman. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> it, to, yep. to see him in such a totally different role. And Eating it up with a spoon, just totally eating it up. Uh, that Paul Rubens 
sort of almost makes the entire movie in one way, you know, with with his improvised death scene, you know, it Ooh Ah Ow Ooh Ooh Ah Ah That that's the point where the movie just sort of embraces, we're going for silly, we're going for the ridiculous, and we're going to have fun with it. Yep. That that death scene was awesome. My friends and I used to reenact <laughs> that scene practically every time. If a character died in one of our RPG sessions, <laughs> it would be like, ooh, ah, ee, ah, ooh. So yeah. good. And that was improvised, did you yes, say? Yes, apparently he he improvised it, and and I and this time watching around, I could sort of tell because you've got uh, Kirsty Swanson and Rucker Hauer trying to hold on to them themselves. They're they're <laughs> slightly like you know fighting to stay in character and not break. Oh, that's fantastic! While I didn't he does know. this, you you can see it just a little bit in their faces as they do that. Oh, brilliant! That makes yeah. it even better, even better. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, can I just also say how I long for the days of movies that come in under 90 minutes? Yeah. That was something else that surprised me when I started watching it. I'm like, oh wow, this is actually quite a short movie by modern standards. Indeed. I, I kind of miss that. Well, and there's no, it's because there's no fat. Right. There's no, you know, I mean, Buffy's parents being a good example, because the parents in the movie are very different to mm-hmm. the family okay. situation in the TV series. And the parents are clearly, you know, they don't pay any attention to her. Mm-hmm. They are wealthy socialites and, you know, sort of racquetball players and what have you. Who are constantly just, yeah, yeah, leaving her at home. But you get all of that I- impression from very, very little mm-hmm. screen time, very few lines. I mean, it's summed up wonderfully when Buffy comes home late after having just killed two right. vampires and her mother says, Do you know what time it is? <sighs> Around 10. I knew this thing was slow. You pay a fortune for something. Honey, come on, we're going to be late. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's another thing that I think um, makes this um, sort of as a theme for the movie um, that I'm trying to remember if it lines up with other um, sort of Valley Girl type movies of the genre, and I'm not sure that it does. But um, the idea that pretty much most of the adults in this movie are useless. Mm. It's very much aimed at the teen audience. You've got the the basketball coach that is more into self realization. Yes. <laughs> You've got the uh, principal who sort of you know when he tries to talk to Buffy about how she's missing so much school, and he just goes off into his own little world about you know about his drug experience. And like you said, the parents are are completely useless, completely absent. Um, you know, Merrick is the only one that provides any kind of guidance or leadership. And even that takes a while because he first he's got to convince Buffy that that she's got to do this. And that he's not some kind of weird, perverted creep. <laughs> right. And, you know, and that's kind of hard to get by because, you know, Donald Sutherland, I think he takes a while to, to <laughs> get into his role. That's one of the things that for someone who's, you know, supposedly such a strong actor, the, the first part of his uh, appearance in the movie kind of creaks, kind of grates a bit. Um, it, it's so out of step. Uh, and it's not until 
um, I even put it in my notes when I was writing it. It's not until we get to the point where um, Buffy finally asks him a bit about himself, and he explains that you know he's reincarnated every time and has to do this every time. And that's like the first time I feel the two of them, the chemistry clicking. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I seem to recall, and I'm not going to say this too strongly because my memory is hazy, but I do seem to recall that Whedon also had a problem with. Donald Sutherland. You are correct. Yes. When yeah. in looking it up, uh, Whedon complained about Sutherland, um, his his attitude, his arrogance, and apparently Sutherland was rewriting stuff to present, um, uh. and 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 in in some cases, um, making um, some of the themes of the movie even more incomprehensible. And there are a few places I will admit that, um, and again. Because, as you said, there's, like, no fat whatsoever. There's very little exposition to explain some of these things. Um, we just get, like, the barest hint of there's one Slayer and one Watcher, and they die and they get reincarnated and keep trying, and apparently Lothos is the only vampire that matters right now. Um, yeah, that, that that is a bit... I've always found that a little odd, that yeah. it's like there's this one vampire that they're basically trying to kill throughout the whole of history. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There, there's apparently uh, a dictator, and that's it. Um, yeah, very odd. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you're right. The exposition is missing in places for sure, but I kind of like that. I, pr- I would rather that True. than the mu- than the movies that stop for like, just stop dead for 10 minutes and have, you know, 10 minutes of people just sitting around a table explaining things to one another. That's, oh, you know. That is very true. That That is very true. Um, Way and, too much of that. But there's there's like one or two spots I would have liked just a touch more explanation. Um, like the main one being um, why it is why it is that um, Lothos and, and Buffy meet in, in the Pasadena float storage the first time. And apparently he, he, you know, he says he doesn't want to kill her yet because he doesn't think she's ready. It's like, well, you know, dude, really? You're, you're not going to, you know, take care of your enemy while they're down. Uh, but then also there's apparently some fact that he has to have her name and he doesn't get her name until Benny overhears Pike and Buffy arguing when he's inside the photo booth. That, that, oh, that wow. that's, Buffy is the chosen one. And apparently that's the key bit of information that Lothos needs to move. That bit doesn't. There's not enough explanation for that. I don't think there's any explanation of that, is there? There isn't. And I did go through, I did read the um, origin comic, which was uh, supposedly, it's it's not written by Whedon, but somebody adapted that comic from his uh, original script. That was the Dark Horse series, yeah. Yes. Um, I did read that just to get a feel for, you know, what, if anything, was super different. And it's not 100% 100% clear in the comic either why that is. It's stated right. more explicitly that he has to, number one, know who the girl is, and number two, have her name before he can act against her. But, you know, again, it's not explained. Right. So, so yeah. So a little more explained, but still kind of why? Oh, hand wave. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, worth uh, mentioning the comic adaptations, actually. Uh, I mean, they are much more to do with the TV show, really, yes. because Whedon famously has actually effectively continued the story of Buffy from the TV show in a series of comics, which he has written. Right. Um, you know, these are not adapted from his plots or anything. Whedon himself has written them, mm-hmm. uh, which are published by Dark Horse. And I was just, I mentioned that only to s- sort of reinforce that, although, as you say, he didn't write the this prequel, effectively, uh, series that was released, I, I know enough, being in that world of comics myself, I know enough about... How, 
dark, how Dark Horse works, their relationship with Whedon, etc. I cannot imagine that Whedon did not have power of right sort of veto, veto and final say and approval over that adaptation. Exactly. Having done adaptations myself, certainly where that's been the case with the original the author of the original text. So even though he didn't actually write it, I think if anybody wants to read it, they should feel comfortable knowing that it effectively is something that Whedon has said, yep, yep, that's good, go for it. Indeed. And I read it mainly to see just how different this was the closest I could get to Whedon's original vision versus what uh, we got in the movie. And But frankly, it's not all that different. Uh, the biggest difference is the climax at the end. Instead of Buffy just fighting until everybody's down, um, they manage to evacuate the gym of all of the students. Pike and um, the administrators and various people help get all the kids out. And then Buffy sets fire to the gym with the vampires inside. Ah. Which is, yeah, and that's really the biggest, that's one of two biggest differences. The other one being... Um, that uh, Merrick's death scene uh, in the comic, uh, Merrick runs into uh, Lothos first and uh, distracts him. So, you know, Buffy's nearby, but Buffy gets away because of this. And the and Lothos is about to do something, I guess, torture Merrick or whatever to get Buffy's name from him. And Merrick shoots himself. Oh, wow. Instead of in the movie where Merrick tries, makes the attempt to kill Lothos, knowing that that's not his role and he cannot do it. It's not his destiny. And then Lothos turning the stake against him to kill him. Yeah. Well, and worth for people who anybody who hasn't seen this movie, worth pointing out that even though he knows that's not his role and uh, etc mm-hmm. he's doing it to save buffy oh yeah because at that point buffy is under lothos's sort of hypnotic influence right um but i think it works a little better for me in the movie um in this case um because uh buffy witnesses his death she's right there yes and then it moves into um you know the scene where she's sort of mourning him she's looking at what's left of his belongings and pike is there to support her and for the first time we see her you know no makeup her hair is just hanging in her face and she's at she's at the bottom of um of her of her character arc at the moment and she's you know now she's going to turn around and start climbing back out um in the in the comic it just sort of cuts she's not even there to see him die but then it cuts to her um talking to pike about uh merrick being dead right so it doesn't have it doesn't it didn't have as much impact for me in the comic as it did in the movie that's definitely a change that i can understand why it was made sure Mm -hmm. yeah um because yeah her being there obviously has much more emotional Mm -hmm. impact and that's i mean you mentioned that christy swanson is good in the role she certainly Mm -hmm. you know gets the valley girl thing down pat but she does also i think do a good job of showing that sort of emotional arc of buffy and showing her as somebody who is clearly starting to learn starting to get to grips with these things and perhaps experiencing selfless thoughts for the first time in her life indeed i think she gets that across really well i i agree with that and that's one of the things i've got in my notes that i think makes this movie worth defending is we have got a hero's journey uh in this 90 minutes we have got the you know unaware chosen one who is happily living her own vapid silly life and everything is shallow and everything is easy and then she gets hit with you have a responsibility and of course the first thing she's going to do is fight it because what teenager wants more responsibility uh and the fact that you know uh merrick convinces her 
to to try this. He shows her that it's a real thing. It's a real threat. And she starts trying to divide her lives and discovers something's got to give. And unfortunately, at first, it's her friends and, and her activities. When they get mad enough at her and, and Hillary Swank, you know, d- tells her she's got to sort her priorities, um, then the vampire side gives way for a little bit. And then she has her conversation with Pike, and Pike is really disappointed because, you know, how can you possibly be stepping away from this? You've got to finish this. You've got to see it through. And at this point, Buffy's like, no, I don't. Um, But and and it all comes together when uh, the vampires come after her at the dance and she, you know, sees it through and fulfills it. So you you have you have that small hero's journey, the, the character leaving the old life behind which is a pretty good parallel for real life. There's so many times and so many things when teenagers have uh, events in their lives that mature them faster than their peers or pull them away from their peers. And, you know, that resonates. Or suddenly thrust responsibility onto them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for teenagers today, especially... um, especially people who haven't seen the um, TV show and don't have that baggage with it. You know, I think there are parts of this movie that would definitely appeal and resonate to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that was one of the major themes, of course, of the TV series as well, was that you can't, you can't do this part time. Mm -hmm. You know, it is something that takes over your life and that constant fighting with, well, hang on, but I am still at, at high school. You know, mm-hmm. I am still a teenage girl and a student. I have other actual responsibilities and things that I need to do beyond saving the world. So, but of course, that's why they also introduced a much larger support cast in the TV series, because mm-hmm. while you can sort of have that hanging and then ultimately resolve it quite easy, well, not easily, but, you know, more simply in a 90 minute movie, you can't keep that going for 22 episodes of a TV show. Right. You have to have people who actually help her and, you know, support and accept that she's got this sort of battle of mm-hmm. priorities and responsibilities going on. And the the hero, I mean, you mentioned that this was like a hero's journey, and that is a classic part of the hero's journey as well, is resisting the call to action. Mm-hmm. I think I think it, what is it? Is is it the reluctant? Oh, I can't remember the the points on the wheel now, but yeah, you you get the call to action. And the very first thing that the hero does in the traditional hero's journey is resist it. Look right. at Luke Skywalker. I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You know, you you have to have the hero be reluctant because if they're too eager, there's no drama, there's no tension. Right, yeah, you've got to have the, wait, what, not me uh, first. Um, plus to make the character more believable. Um, you know, the character who's sort of, who's going to grasp that destiny with both hands right away. Um comes off uh, much more arrogant, much more self-assured, um, much less relatable. Yeah. Well, and I think in, in stories normally where a character might not resist, they then normally have a very swift pratfall. And right. that, that makes them in turn resist because they go, oh, actually, this isn't as easy as I thought. <laughs> exactly. And uh, something else that I think um, not only the hero's journey itself that Buffy represents, but the fact that this was one of the first um few examples during that time period of a female protagonist yes taking this role um a lot of what i saw online when i started poking around and looking for reactions to the movie was this set of um women today commenting on pop culture who are like i saw that when i was 10 and it meant something to me or i saw that when i was was you know 10 or 12 or 8 you know seeing this as a young girl 
uh, to see somebody that they can identify with. They can identify with the cheerleader, the head cheerleader. They know who that character is. Maybe that's a character they want to be when they grow up. But not only is she a head cheerleader, but she goes on to kick butt. Um, and to be allowed to be powerful and to be the leader with a guy as her sidekick. You didn't have a huge amount of that um, in late 80s, early 90s in, no. in movies. You, you still don't have a lot of it now. True. This is This is a conversation that, you know, we seem to be continually having in all media. Again, this is something that comes up in comics a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. That's And of course, Whedon is now renowned for his, quote, strong female characters mm. and for having uh, sort of helped push back that barrier within pop culture and more power to him for it. I mean, there's a wonderful quote, which I sometimes wheel out myself. I also write lots of leading female, you know, sort of strong female characters, mm-hmm. uh, leading female women. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful quote that from many years ago when somebody, and I don't recall the context, but somebody said to Whedon, why do you keep writing all these strong female characters? And he simply answered, because you keep asking me that question. <laughs> and I confess that I have wheeled that out myself from time mm-hmm. to time as a response, because that's exactly, you know, if you have to ask, then clearly we have not Gotten reached a point, point yet. where yeah. this is not unusual. And you're right. Representation is so important. You see that so much, especially now that we are finally starting and i i say only starting but nevertheless we are starting to sort of cross that bridge and go over that hump in in mm-hmm. nerd culture especially with yeah. comics and video games and movies and you see so many especially at cons now comic-con right. as we record this comic-con in san diego just took place and i saw uh some amazing pictures of you know tiny little girls <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know from six to ten years old and what have you cosplaying as powerful female superheroes or uh, agent carter from the tv show mm-hmm. or the new version of lara croft you know the mm-hmm. one who doesn't have uh, who has clothes yes <laughs> <laughs> um and so on and so on and so on it's uh you know you see grown women uh, cosplaying again as agent carter as mm. uh, captain marvel as uh, right. a female shepherd you know fem shep from mm-hmm. mass effect and this wasn't happening before these characters, or not on this sort of scale anyway, before these characters were there to represent the audience. Um, it it blows my mind when people don't understand how important that sort of representation it is. And right. I'm still amazed that there is resistance to it. Mm-hmm. And I do remember watching this in the early 90s and going like, yeah, finally, uh, you know, a young girl character who actually has a male sidekick and is stronger than the men, literally stronger yeah. than the men. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, and that's um, yeah, something else that, they, that Whedon was willing to let Pike be something of a bumbler. You know, he, he comes through, absolutely, but, you know, he, he, he's got to figure this out first. Um, and he's uh, not as quick, not as capable as Buffy is. Uh, he, yeah, it totally works. The, the one shame in that respect, the one thing that kind of makes me go, ah, oh, is the very final scene where they ride away on a bike into the sunset, except who's riding the bike and who's riding Pillion? Pike's riding the bike. Buffy's riding Pillion. We've already seen that she can ride a bike. Right. Like not, not 15 minutes before we had her riding a motorbike like a badass, mm-hmm. chasing vampires through the town. Yeah. Uh, but suddenly now she's the one who's got to ride Pillion. Well, I'm kind of okay with that um, 
you know, partly because it, it's his bike, you know, he, it, that, that they're riding. <laughs> um, but also, uh, towards the end, there's a really neat exchange between them um, right after the, um, they, they've killed all the vampires. And, you know, now it's time for cleanup. Yes, yes. And the two of them are in the gym. And Pike is like, you know, it asks her to dance again. I, uh, I saved you a dance. You can ask me. I suppose you want to lead. No. Me neither. This is a good thing. So there, at the end, there's that little bit of a quality mm. that you know each will bring their half to the table. So, you know, that's one of the reasons the ride into the sunset didn't bother me quite as much. Yeah, so. Fair enough. I, I actually thought you were going to mention the line uh, after the fight, because Pike gets knocked unconscious briefly, mm-hmm. and, and there's chaos, and, you know, she defeats the bad vampires, and then he wakes up. <sighs> Did I do all of that? No. <sighs> Did you do all that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that works very well also. And again, Whedon, I assume that most of the good quotable lines in this are from Whedon's scripts because some of them, yeah, Yeah. there are so many good ones. You ruined my new jacket. Kill him a lot. Another one that I and my friends used to quote back and forth (laughs) at one another a lot. And one I'd actually forgotten about, but when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that the first time around. When they first see I think it's when they first see Lothos mm-hmm. and Pike says I know that guy that is a bad guy can we go please yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is I made a note of that very Whedon yeah, yeah, so that, yeah that, that definitely very Whedon and that um, reminds me of something else that I really like about um, about Buffy's characterization and about the movie um, is the fact that um, she's Yes, she's vapid, and yes, she's shallow, but um, she's not stupid, and she's never helpless yes. in, in the movie. Even before Merrick takes her, you know, takes her on, um, she's, you know, quick to, um, quick to defend herself against, you know, the other boys. She's, um, you know, quick to um, assert herself. Uh, in front, in front of these other guys, uh, right? You know, very early on, we see that Jeffrey is is a boyfriend, and he's a nice boyfriend, but she doesn't need him. Uh, even when her parents leave and they're sitting in the dark, and he's like, "Oh, you know, essentially, I need to protect you. You're all alone by yourself." She rolls her eyes. He doesn't yeah. see it, but she <laughs> rolls her eyes at it. Uh, and then a little later on, of course, his his buddy, you know, grabs her and she just flips him over and slams him against the lockers and scares everybody. And while that's her vampire training coming in, I think if he'd done that, she still would have reacted similarly. She might not have been so uh, forceful about it, but she still would have stood up for herself. Right. But the response in general would have been the same. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. He also doesn't notice that she rolls her eyes because, right. of course, he is trying to make out while exactly. she's trying to watch TV and eat chips. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. She, she's she got other things on her mind, even at that point. Speaking as an ex-teenage boy myself, oh, how that <laughs> scene, how I sympathised. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, just 
you said right at the top that you one of the reasons that you didn't start watching the TV show was because you enjoyed the movie so much. But surely you have seen some of the TV show. Um, I actually um, have not seen a full episode. No, I've, I've, I'm wow. on Tumblr. I've seen the gift sets. I've seen <laughs> the. Um, I, I mean, I've seen not plenty the of the gift sets. I've seen plenty of snippets. Um, you can't. Um, you can't be in fandom and not sort of know sort of what's going on with Buffy. So I was aware of, you know, Team Angel versus Team Spike. Um, I was aware when Whedon did what was possibly the first of his famous kill him for no reasons just to make everybody cry in uh, Tara. <laughs> um, you know, and of the fact that Whedon was willing to explore same-sex relationships. Um, you know, all of these things I was aware of, but... Um, from the beginning of hearing about the TV show, um, a little bit of it, I think, was maybe Sarah Mas- Michelle Geller. I, I grant she's a great actress. I grant she she's wonderful, but um, she did not strike me as my Buffy. Um, Kirsty Swanson embodies my idea of Buffy, um, of that teen attitude with flashes of uh, of smart that are behind that attitude. Sarah Michelle Geller always struck me as somebody who's smart and has flashes of attitude. So it just, it never quite worked for me. So I didn't start watching and, and I kept not watching and um, it sort of became a thing. <laughs> part of, part of my nerd identity. Wow. Wow. Um, I, had you seen Sarah Michelle Geller in anything before? Buffy, because I'd literally never heard of her before that series um, started. I was aware of her soap opera role because at the t- yeah, my ah. sister. That was a time when I was rooming with my sister, and my sister was watching six soap operas a day thanks to the VCR. Right. So I was I was aware of her, you know, in general. We don't get US soaps over here as a general rule, so I had no idea that. Uh, I know that that does happen. Somebody will pop up and I'll be like, who's this actor? I've never seen him before. And and, and everybody, all my American friends will be like, oh yeah, it's that guy off of uh, Days of Our Lives or right. I don't know, some, some, I don't even know what half of them are called. <laughs> right. Well, most of them are gone now too, finally. So. Oh, really? They've all, most of them are pretty much di- dried up. I think there's like only one or two still limping along. Oh, wow. I still can't believe you've never seen a whole episode. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I've never seen a whole episode. I, I I thought about it. I asked on Twitter when we first um, set up that we were going to do this to, you know, ask for, throw me a few representative episodes. And I think I had a single response um, that someone gave me like three or four episodes, but I didn't have time to sit down and watch properly. Um, this, this is a complete non sequitur, but I have to mention it. Uh, Rugger Hauer, most unconvincing violin miming ever. <laughs> I love Rutger Hauer. I really do. I, I, I've never seen him in anything where I didn't think he at least was great, even if the movie was terrible. Uh-huh. But my God, he can't you even try? Like, put some effort in at least. <laughs> Since I do not play an instrument, that went over my head. Oh. Um, I will, he, I will he, grant he, it to anybody who knows. He's bare, I mean, I don't play violin, but I do play a bit of guitar. And uh-huh. He's barely even moving his fingering uh, hand. Okay. And this, yeah... <laughs> Okay. Yeah. 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 For the most part, Rucker Hauer works very well for me, you know, totally enjoying the role, camping it up, that sort of thing. You and I, look at me. You and I are joined. We're joined? Please. You stupid little bitch. How are you going to stop me? I am life beyond death. And you are just like the other girls. Maybe I'll surprise you. 
This is your defense. Please. The the only thing that makes me cringe, and I'm going to I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that this was filmed early on when he was still getting used to his teeth, but when he bursts into the gym and <laughs> Have you beg, split, opened like rotted fruit, all of you? The, the fangs totally get in the way of his delivery. I actually, you, you might be right, but I thought that was deliberate. I thought that was him, again, sort of chewing the scenery. Well, there's chewing the scenery and then there's not being able to speak past your prosthetics. <laughs> so for, for me, it came down on the ladder. Uh, you're probably right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but he is wonderfully camp in this. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, just completely choose the scenery. I mean, his entrance, the very first time that you actually see, because you see his arm. Right. You see him in the past, sure. But then in the modern day, you see his arm sticking out of the coffin Mm -hmm. once or twice. But then the first time that you actually see him full bodied, as it were, is when he hovers down to face uh, Buffy. And he's even got like, you know, the sort of. I'm not even sure, I'm sure there's a name for it. You know, those, uh, the capes that dancers use where you've got a rod that the cape hangs down from so that you can swirl it around. He's even got those. So he's holding out the cape sort of Batman style as he floats down. It's, and you know, you've got pipe organ playing in the background and Mm -hmm. oh dear. (laughs) Yep. It is wonderful. I agree. Um, You have to feel sorry to an extent for Christy Swanson because she didn't, she hasn't done an awful lot after this and she must've felt so ripped when the TV show became such a huge thing. Yeah, to, to not to not only not be considered a part of that on a regular basis, but you know, to have so much of the fandom you know, follow Whedon's lead and, and reject it. Um, and, and I think it's a pity. Uh, I, I do not deny that, you know, people will prefer the TV show over the movie. That's fine. Um, you know, some of us prefer, you know, one series over the other. Some of us are Twilight fans. Some of us are Harry Potter fans. You know, the, the, the divisions happen, opinions happen. Um, but, yeah, I, I do feel that the movie just does not get a fair shake because so many people um, just, you know, the only thing they know about it is Whedon didn't like it and therefore they're not going to like it without even seeing it. And that's something else that I was amused by um, in poking around for opinions, uh, various comments on on blog posts and so forth, where some people would be like, yeah, I refused to see it for so long. And then like suddenly I had the chance to see it. And you know what? This ain't bad. Right. So, yeah. you know, so give it a fair shake. Well, and you have to think that uh, a certain amount of the preference for the TV series comes because it's a TV series. It ran for what, seven years? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, plenty of, of course, time. something that runs for that length of time is going to become, if you watch it, it's going to become part of your life, become mm-hmm. part of the way that you view the the IP, as it were. And yes, of, of course, you're going to then go, well, of course, it's much better than the, than the movie. But that's mm-hmm. because they have had, oh, good Lord, what would it be? I, I, I'd have to get a calculator out, but at least a hundred, yeah. at least a hundred times the length of the, of a movie yeah. to uh, to tell essentially the same story and deal with the characters and stuff. So, yeah, it's it's impossible to compare one to the other. You know, it's I mean, even here's another Whedon property: even Firefly versus mm-hmm. Serenity. I think the Serenity movie is pretty good, mm-hmm. but. You know, the Firefly, the Firefly series, what, what did we get? Like seven episodes, eight episodes, nine? It wasn't a lot, was it? It couldn't have been, it was, if it was one season, it couldn't have been more than 12. 
Yeah, I think it was. Well, I'm pretty sure it was single figures as well. Okay. Um, and and even that is still, uh, you know, and bear in mind that obviously this was at a time when Whedon was in control, so mm-hmm. he could make sure that both the TV show and the movie represented what he wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And yet the TV show is still way better than the movie just because mm-hmm. you have so much more time to get to know these characters and the world that they inhabit. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just, I think that's a really unfair comparison. Yeah, exactly. And that that's, that's why I think it is unjustly maligned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, says the title, you wins the prize. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we haven't really emphasised which you mentioned right at the start of the show, actually, is how much fun this movie is. And I know Joss Whedon maybe wasn't happy with it and thought that it shouldn't have been this much of a comedy, but it is funny. It's it's a funny movie that's just a bit of a roller coaster and a lot of fun to watch. It's not, yes, as you said, it's not deep or high art, but there are way, way worse movies that take up a lot more than 90 minutes of your time. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I, I would totally agree with that. Um, yeah, it just, you know, it goes in the same vein of, you know, stuff like uh, Once Bitten or Fright Night that, you know, this is not necessarily played, this is not played to be serious. This is played to try and entertain you. And I think it succeeds. Mm. Well, and also, here's a bit of a weird thing, but I'm going to say, if you enjoyed Near Dark you probably would enjoy this. Now, okay. in terms of tone, they are very different movies. But one of the things that's, that made Near Dark stand out at the time was that it tr- the vampires themselves behaved like normal people with okay. normal attitudes and normal sort of desires. And they talked like normal people. They were It wasn't all these and those and, you know, Hammer uh-huh. Horror Dracula. Uh, and that is one of the things that I think makes this movie stand the test of time is that most of the characters, even Lothos to an extent, you know, they all talk like fairly regular people. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's, you know, at the time that was ironically kind of innovative. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. We Yeah, we didn't have uh, many examples, even in the even in the comedic vampire movies. There, there were not a, many examples of that. No. And I think that's that, that's another thing to recommend it. So, yeah, I would I would definitely say to anybody listening who, you know, uh, might be on the fence. Give it a go. Like I say, it's literally if you cut out the credits and stuff, the running time is like eighty minutes. It's it's incredibly mm. short. It's barely more than watching, you know, um, a double length episode of Law and Order or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so where can people get this? Is it on Netflix? Um, it is, I believe, on Netflix. If I'm reading the website right, and of course, it is also readily available on DVD and Blu-ray wherever you buy your titles. And we will uh, put a link to that on Amazon in the show notes, as we always do in case people, I know a lot of people don't look at show notes when they listen to podcasts <laughs> and that's fine. You know, whatever. Don't mind all the hard work that I put in finding links for you people. But <laughs> it, yes, you will always find if something is available to buy on Amazon, um, you will, all, or, you know, an official site or whatever, you will always find at least one link where you can purchase something uh, in the show notes of the show for whatever we're talking about. And so okay. I will put a link to the Buffy, uh, probably the Blu-ray, if it's available on Blu-ray, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, That is a perfect place to bring this to a close. Shannon Sadath, where can people find you if they like what you have to say? Um, They can uh, go to b5audioguide.com, where um, our podcast, our rewatch of the Babylon 5 series is happening every two weeks uh, with myself and my husband, Chip Sudderth, and um, our good friend, Erica Ensign. Um, and occasionally, of course, uh, on Two Minute Time Lord. 
handy when your husband actually does the podcast and you can just shout across the room. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or or when he's when he's out of ideas, he's like, you know, Shannon, come come talk about something. Come talk about <laughs> come talk about Russell T Davies again. Because uh, I will I will always support Russell T Davies in in the Doctor Who universe. And where are you on Twitter? Um, Twitter is at Starfury10, numeral 10. Is that because there were nine other Starfuries? That is because um, nine other people had taken the name Starfury, one through eight, and and Starfury by itself. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Unjustly Maligned. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please check out my comics, books, and music. For example, if you're into kick-ass female heroes with a line in sarcastic quips, you may enjoy my new series, Codename Babushka, a high-action spy thriller starting in October 2015 from Image Comics. Codename Babushka will be available at your local comic or bookstore and at online retailers everywhere. Go to anthonyjohnston.com where you'll find information and links to all of my work. Please also consider rating Unjustly Maligned on iTunes. It's the best way to spread the word about the show and is very much appreciated. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for The Incomparable and is made in England. You can find more information, links and show notes at ump.fm. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. One thing that struck me was, shouldn't Paul Rubin's character be, like, crapping himself when Luke Perry drives the van into the woods? Because all it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you know, the stakes are just ordinary wood. They're not sort of, you know, they haven't got holy mm-hmm. water sprinkled over them or anything. All it would take is one stray branch sticking out of a tree <laughs> <laughs> while he's on the front of that van and boom, he's staked. I think he, he's too busy, you know, having fun surfing, van surfing. <laughs> to, he, he's, he, you know, as I think even um, uh, Lothos mentions a couple of times that, um, that you know, I don't know how you survive the Crusades. You know, right. This is like a, this is an impulsive vampire who just thrives on being a vampire. So I don't think it occurs to him until he's driving into that branch that oh, this was a bad idea, and it's just darn lucky for him. All he lost was an arm, and ruined a really good jacket. How, how come everybody in California knows how to ride motorbikes? Is this is this something that just is this part of you know your school lessons or something? I I would not know. I mean, I, I grew up riding motorbikes, but then my sister and I lived on an 11-acre farm where we had room to, to do oh, wow. this. But, right. um, but yeah, I, I, I cannot explain um, why, why Buffy would be able to instantly, you know, uh, take, the, take the guy's motorbike and just go. Yeah, the, the, we're, and we're given no indication previous to that that she knows how to ride a bike or it's or clearly drive. just... Right, yeah. yeah, it's clearly just assumed like, oh yes, of course she knows how to ride a bike. Oh, mm-hmm. oh okay. <laughs> this is one of those things that as a Brit you see in American mm-hmm. movies, it's like 14-year-olds driving cars. You yeah. see that as as a Brit, you see that and you go, what? 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 Yeah. <laughs> are you insane? My husband and I are totally wrapped up in uh, Sense8, the uh, Wachowski and oh, yeah. J. Michael Straczynski Netflix show. Um, well, and, and there's talk about a divisive series. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the resp- well, just yeah. the response. I haven't seen it myself, but the responses to it that I've, to that particular show that I've seen are really 50-50 that this is either huh. the worst thing people have ever seen or the best thing people have ever seen. 
Okay. Get, I, as somebody who loved Jupiter Ascending, I suspect I'm going to come down on the love side. <laughs> well, and see, I'm a Babylon 5 fan from way back. So, of course, of course, you know, of yes. course I'm going to give Straczynski plenty of rope uh, on anything <laughs> that, he, that he presents. And I'm halfway through Sensei, and I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. So I would recommend it to anybody who might be interested and have the time. But um, but it, it's a slow burn, just like a lot of J. Michael Straczynski stuff. It, it's I, I not have like, no problem with slow burn. Yeah. 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 It's opposite of Whedon, who will, you know, throw you in and get you started right away. He doesn't waste time. Why Star Fury itself, actually? Um, it's um, the... Um, the fighter, the name of the fighter in Babylon Five. Um, oh, and, I see. And it just it it likes it. You know, it it began with S. You know, so oh, that's <laughs> I just true, sort of yes. leaped on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I um, I confess, I have never watched Babylon Five myself, and mm-hmm. the the existence of the B Five Audio Guide has made me think I really should. Because I, you know, I, I didn't not watch it for any reason. It, yeah, it, it was broadcast at a time when I. For, for a number of years, I didn't even own a television. Right. And even when I did, I didn't watch a lot of it. So, right. you know, there was nothing. I'm kind of genetically predisposed to enjoy that sort of show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just never got around to it. And by the time I thought, oh, I really should watch that. We were already like three series in or something. And I was, oh, God. You know, well, do I have it, the time? It didn't stop a lot of people from jumping in halfway through. Um, Erica actually had that experience um, where she started watching uh, partway through season two or early season three and oh, watched, right. watched the rest of it and then went back from to watch the beginning because um, it grabbed her that much. Oh, uh, interesting. And this, I mean, this was also in the days before, you know, you could easily get hold of box sets and stuff. So. Yeah, that's true. Because Chip's introduction uh, to the show uh, was actually a couple of friends of his uh, were watching it and getting into it and telling Chip, you really need to watch this show. And uh, at the time, Chip was finishing grad school and he was kind of like, um, yeah, whatever, busy, thesis. Um, and um, then, you know, one night, uh, the, the friends just came over with this big box of VHS tapes that they had recorded, like the, the first season or, or, the, or whatever had been aired so far. They just recorded it onto VHS tapes and they just shoved the VHS tapes into his hand and said, now watch order do <laughs> so you know he sat down and started watching and he was like okay this is good shannon hey come here take a look and i started watching and you know and the rest is as i say history um but yeah i highly recommend um anybody who has the time for a a five-year tv show um to to sit down and 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 watch it through and again um like i mentioned with sense8 it, it's a slow burn essentially the first season is essentially a super long introduction laying the foundation for what's going to start happening in the in the rest of the show um but if you can get through it um and and be patient it, it does reward continuity it rewards you remembering things that were mentioned in in the first season all the way into season three connections get made um Excellent. yeah uh and talk sorry go on go go ahead no you first go on no i was just going to um mention i don't know what i was going to mention i'm sorry (laughs) 